the UK column deals with a lot of people with very varied opinions, often very strong opinions, uh, often people who are pushing against the mainstream and have a story to tell, and who might not get the ability or the freedom to tell that in, for example, the mainstream media. But we have a problem. Right? We've obviously got to pick who we go with and who we don't. So we've got to make judgments. And here's the problem. None of the labels mean anything. Someone comes to us and says, I'm a scientist. Right? Now that could mean this is a person dedicated to the highest ethical standards, uh, rigorous analysis, open and free debate, all in the name of the search for truth. Or it could mean that we're dealing with a science evangelist on the government payroll putting out the latest false religion. And the, we can't tell from the label. Someone might come and say, I'm a Christian, and we could be talking about someone who is, who, who's, who's uh, a, a manifestation of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the love of Jesus Christ shines out of their face. Or we could be looking at someone who's using that label um, to give credence to a narrow, um, uh, bitter uh, personal view or to deflect criticism that's in fact well-earned. We don't know. The labels don't mean anything. So we have to look for something else. So there's several things we look for. One is if someone is personally suffering because of what they're saying and continues to say it, uh, we know at the very least that they're not lying. Right? They're telling what, they're, what they're, they consider to be the truth. They might be right, they might be wrong, but at least that's a very, very strong sign that they're honest. Um, passing a point out, this is one of the arguments for Christianity, because you had the apostles going to their death saying that Christ had defeated death, and none of them recanted. Right? They, all, they, they were all in. They meant what they said. Someone who suffers for what they say and continues to say it, we're always interested in that person. Secondly, there's, there's a reason. There's always reason in what they say. Right? The, the, the people who are honest appreciate the difficulty in finding the truth, and they will reason out why they believe a certain thing. They will explain why they don't believe a certain narrative. There's always reason and reasonableness in what they say. It's it, because the truth, they recognise the truth doesn't require a kind of bodyguard of snapping turtles to silence opposition. There are always reasons. And finally, sticking to it through, through suffering requires determination. Reason requires a dedication to truth and, and, and an unwillingness to compromise with half-truths and lies. But also there's a kind of gentleness. There's a, there's a gentleness and a, a, a tolerance of other opinions. And I, I don't mean the kind of the half-baked, um, I, I don't care what you think as long as it's a kind of philosophical 20, 21st century mush that everyone else believes. Not that kind of tolerance, actual tolerance. Appreciation that people are going to have different views and that's okay. And we can talk about that because the search for truth is complex and it's difficult and it's something that the more people who are on that path, the better um, so these three things, a kind of gentleness, a, a, a reason that permeates what they do, and, and a willingness to suffer and still carry on. These are the three things we look for. So um, 
And it's and it's these three things that that uh, led us to invite our guest today. Uh, it will de- delight many people. It may it may appall uh, some <laughs> of our audience as well. Uh, but we're very delighted to welcome uh, the lovely Katie Hawkins. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. That was a very kind um, introduction. And I think what should be said, importantly, at the front end of this, is that your shirt is great. That we need to make a point that this shirt of yours is fabulous. I, I do appreciate that because I, I'll be frank here: the shirt has come in for some criticism. Uh, <gasps> wow! Well, not, I mean, not not least of which from some of my colleagues. Wow! You you know there are just people out there, my love, that that just don't have our kind of taste, and all we can do <laughs> is pity with them and sympathise. No, look, it's nice to see someone with a bit of brightly coloured going on. There's too much grey. There's too much standard blues you know we need a bit of we need a bit of pizzazz on our side and you have it and uh, on the second point i would like to say um thank you for listening to uh, anybody who's might be a supporter or a laughs along at me and if you could stay if you hate me um but if you would stay and listen anyway um that would be terrific and i would be very appreciative and i accept that you can't stand me that's totally fine so I, I'd, I'd like to start with a little bit of you know, your personal history, because I talked to you about people who stick to their guns, even when it's costing them everything. And this is part of your history. And I, and I think it, 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 it informs a lot of what you do and say. And um, it, it's, it's obviously very key to who you are today. So could, could you maybe just give us a, a, a little outline of, of how you became the Katie Hopkins of today, what's happened to you in the past for speaking, and um, well, what you what you think about that now? People say, you know, uh, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, how on earth did you end up, you know, like this? Like, how did you get like this? <laughs> and I always think, what you mean, like a, a haggard old haggard old menopausal lady? Um, but I guess I come at this from two sides. The first side is that I had a very standard upbringing, a convent school, a very fortunate upbringing in terms of a very traditional mum and dad, um, went through school uh, to college, found school easy, found uh, exams easy, uh, ended up, uh, got my economics degree, came out of my university with uh, the highest scoring economics degree, went to Sandhurst, went through the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, came out as one of four um, intelligent officers in the British Army. So standard, standard, standard. Uh, And then if I come at this from another point, it's that before lockdown and before COVID hit and before um, most people started to catch up to the idea that something very dark was going on, in that middle bit between leaving Sandhurst and the British Army and the lockdown bit, I'd had 20 years of learning what was coming. And as part of that, at one point, I was probably one of the best known media faces in the UK and certainly as well in America. Uh, Had my Daily Mail column, so Mail Online, Global Columnist, more read than Piers Morgan, most read on the Daily Mail, the biggest online newspaper. I had my LBC show in the heart of London, uh, so a radio show most listened to, Sunday commercial show. Um, so I was known on Fox News twice a week. I kind of was well known. 
And in order to stop me, in order to get me out, because I was never part of the club, I was never part of the protected racket that runs this country, and I was never welcome. Um, and so in order to get rid of me from this audience, from um, the profile that I had, I was completely and utterly eviscerated from the face of the UK. Um, and until recently had not spoken one word in the UK for about five years. And when I say eviscerated, just to give a very brief summary, uh, first they came for my jobs. So that was my column and my radio and any other work. Trump tweeted me, so they took my PayPal. Uh, my bank accounts were closed down 10 years ago and those of my daughter randomly. Um, so banks, uh, jobs first, uh, banks they took. They took my, um, next up was my home. So there was new law created just for me that says, if you today or your listeners, one of your listeners that's listening now, if you believe I've, uh, you perceive that I have seriously harmed you today with my words, you can sue me tomorrow. And the idea is that you settle for £30,000 each time, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so that involved the selling of my family home and the getting rid of any possessions that I had. Uh, so I now own nothing. I don't have a bank account. I don't have a home. Uh, then they came for my children. So my children were reported repeatedly to social services that I was abusive. Uh, my children, who were still relatively little, had to be interviewed independently to find out what I'd done to them. Um, and so now none of my children have my name. Uh, I've never been near any of their schools, not one day in all of their lives. Uh, and I distance myself from my children in public so that they will be protected from me. Um, and then a couple of jihadis, there's a news report, if people wanted to refer to it later, a couple of jihadis launched uh, an attack on me. Uh, they wanted my head. Um, and so a team of specialists turned up at my home one night to fit panic alarms and told me if anyone tries to come through the doors, I should shake the panic alarm. And then the British government, uh, we could grab a screen grab of this, but the British government commissioned a play uh, or part funded a play called The Assassination of Katie Hopkins. Uh, and those billboards went up around the country. And so I would say that is the way that I was removed and eviscerated. I'm still banned from all mainstream media. I'm banned from media in the States. And then in, as I have continued my work, I have banned, been banned from South Africa by the ANC. And I'm also currently banned from um, Australia. So, so that has continued. But uh, uh, the glorious thing about these two sides of my life is that as we go into lockdown, as we go into the madness that we're descending into, I find myself uh, perfectly free. And it's been such a blessing to me to own nothing, to have nothing, uh, and to be frightened of nothing. And that's why I'm able to still do what I do. And I can do it with with every freedom that, that it's possible to have. I'm very, very lucky. It's When you put it like that, you're all that, and I, and I followed your story and, and, and all the things you're, you're talking about here, when you put it in that list, it's, it's, a, it's a deeply shocking list about how much they came after you, particularly the children, but all the rest of it. Um, and it, and it's, it illustrates that you've been through a lot of the things that, that we've been reporting on that the ordinary people up and down the country have, have had. You know, we've, we've reported on 
scenes and sometimes videoed scenes of, of people having their children seized. It's heartbreaking. And, and the callousness with which British police, social services, authorities treat people is, is, is beyond words in some way. It's, it's, it's deeply disturbing. And it comes from a society that has itself lost its way, clearly. That there's no sense of right and wrong. There's no sense of, hang on, I'm not doing that. That's evil. There's no sense of good and evil, one thing. Um, so this, all this came for you. Um, I suppose that, that my next question is, you know, what did you say? You know, what what yeah. do you think was the was the the, the trigger that un the un that unleashed all of that upon you? Yes, and I'm fortunate to know. So there's two sides to this. One is um, it's a naive question. So when I was banned from Twitter. Uh, five years ago, and um, that was achieved via sort of coalition, if you will, of Rachel Riley. Um, she's one to keep an eye on. Um, the Muslim Council, the Board of Deputies, and a number of others worked together, went to Twitter HQ, and had my account removed. So when people say, this is just about Twitter, well, what did you say? What, what was the tweet? You know, it's a naive question, because there wasn't one it was a coalition of representatives who uh, managed to have me eviscerated. And actually, interestingly, the same is very true of when this plan to, I think, I will always say truthfully, um, they will come for you until you swing from a tree. I absolutely believe the pressure is piled upon you until you remove yourself in the most final way because you cannot take it anymore. Uh, that day for me came when I was on the Mail Online and I refused to do what columnists do, which is sit in their houses and write stuff that's designed to attract attention or be controversial. So when people say, oh, you're a controversialist, I find that um, I, I, uh, that's fine, I, I accept that, but I know me and what I was actually doing at the Daily Mail was going to places to show truths that couldn't be argued with. So it didn't matter if it was me telling them, I was showing. I was stood on the shore in southern Italy in front of a Save the Children ferry, uh, a rescue boat for migrants across the Med. I had spent two months there with a translator and a cameraman, and I had documents from the border uh, police who knew who was coming, the time that these ferries, charity boats would arrive, I was working with all sorts of people. I knew when the Save the Children boat was going because they had a scheduled pickup with the Libyans in the Med. And it was reporting on that story and the day that I was stood on the docks in southern Italy that it was decided that I would be removed. And I saw it happen in real time because uh, I worked directly with the editor of Mail Online, a guy called Martin Clark. If anybody knows what it's like to work with Martin Clark, it's not, uh, it's not an easy relationship. And that day that that report went in from me, great story, all factual, all uh, first-hand reporting, it all descended. And if people out there still don't believe in the idea of a matrix or the idea of a very tight club, I, I can tell you it exists, I've seen it. So first up was the chief rabbi, the chief rabbi, of the whole globe, 
wanting a meeting with my editor, Martin Clark. Then it was uh, Brendan Cox. People have always known that there's something about him. He was head of the Save the Children, or at least involved in Save the Children and Labour. There's a lot about Brendan Cox. Uh, he was involved straight to my editor. Uh, the Labour Party were involved. The Board of Deputies uh, had one of their letters with 53 signatures. The Guardian were involved. Someone inside the morning briefing at The Guardian got to me via text to warn me that The Guardian were sending all of their forces to have me removed from everything. Um, and then Conservative Party members, the Catholic Church, they are all in. Charities, religious groups, powerful political leaders decide who gets to speak in this country and who does not. And on that day, uh, everything started to go very dark very quickly. And, and that carried on for you know, a good sort of three years of, of evisceration. Yes, wow. So immigration was the, the, single, the, the single defining point. I mean, this, this is an area, I, I think, I think in, in the UK column, we've, we've, been, we've, we've been very clear about the fact that it's a, it's a, a politically motivated process. Right? It's not about the individuals necessarily, it's about what is being done to our countries. Um, we've reported um, Peter Sutherland, the deceased uh, former EU, uh, 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 what was his title? BBC here calling him EU, EU Migration Chief, which will be his formal title. But he, he was, he was a, a, an Irish politician, uh, part of the EU, non-executive chairman of Goldman Sachs International, former chairman of, of BP, heads the Global Forum on Migration and Development. He said that the EU should do its best to undermine the homogeneity of its member states. So this is policy. This was policy. Um, and although I think we've found this a, a, a difficult issue to talk about within the column, that aspect of it, the policy aspect of it, is one where we've we've found that it's it's it, genu it genuinely shocks people when they find out. No, this is this is this is not a conspiracy theory. They've talked about it. It's a conspiracy fact. This is what this is what, what is being done to undermine our, our countries. Um, so you went through all of this hammering to get you to the point of swinging from a tree but you're not, you're here. So how did that happen? Probably a lack of courage. Uh, it strikes me that people who are able to end their own lives um, have an extraordinary amount of courage to be able to do that. And it's one of the really troubling things to me that people who have this extraordinary courage aren't able to find that courage to be able to survive every day, which just goes to show how hard it gets. The noise becomes so all surrounding that you can't escape it. And that's why when I see people who commit suicide by drowning, you can understand it because you can feel how quiet that would be. Um, and I'm bringing this at this personal level because I've, I've definitely been here. And I totally understand Caroline Flack in the sense that an opportunity to escape the noise and make it all stop. And for me as a mother, so through all of this, so I have three children, uh, two girls and a boy, um, the only way as a mother I could see 
to protect the children was to take myself away and end myself in order that I could allow them to have a chance not being besmirched by me. And that's how, that's how, it, how close it all really gets. And it is strange enough in those darkest moments where it, those are the one or two or three voices that somehow scoop in and, and hold on to you for a little bit. No, no one else knows. The world outside doesn't know. Your family don't know. Your friends don't know. Obviously, lovely Mark, my husband knew, but him and two or three others who had no reason to be in touch with me right then scoop in and get you to just hold on. And, um, and that's always my message now with others. As soon as I see someone being eviscerated, I will always now tiptoe quietly in and ask them just to hold on because that's what you have to do. You have to just, even if it involved lying on the floor, not moving, you just have to hold on. And, um, and of course, as it turns out, you know, I'm so grateful now uh, to still be around because strangely enough, in a country where I was the most hated uh, woman in the country or the biggest bitch in Britain, as the Daily Mail had it later, or whatever, uh, so many people have been so kind enough to listen now without the filter of mainstream and see a little of what I'm trying to do maybe and are kind enough to say, well, I hated you. And now I think I see what you're trying to get at. So it's been, um, I've been so lucky and so blessed to have support of so many brilliant people. Um, and the, and the other thing I wanted to just say about what you're talking about there is about the uh, migration thing. It isn't at all personal. It is just policy. It is just policy. We are distracted by talking about slavery in the past. And we're distracted so that we talk about, oh, reparations, must pay reparations for slavery, like it was something that happened before. The most profitable industry that there is, is the movement of human flesh. And I would argue that more flesh is being moved on a daily basis for profit than at any other time in history. And all roads lead to Rome. If you look at where that profit goes, it goes to the very people who are preaching about how terrible slavery was and why we should pay reparations. So, so just to reflect on that, but yeah, I consider myself now super lucky. Um, and also, um, I think this segues slightly to, to where we're going later, but, um, you know, because of a certain other things in my life, the reason I had to leave the military way back when I'm also, uh, on extra time, uh, in many different ways, I'm on extra time because I didn't end my life and I'm on extra time because uh, I, I had epilepsy and now I don't. So, so I, I am super lucky and super, super privileged to be so free to be able to continue speaking the same truths as I've been speaking for the last 20 years, despite being eviscerated. Yeah, one of the stories we're covering in the last week and I've covered in the past is a footballer in Scotland called David Goodwillie, and he was accused of rape and the charges were dropped, and this was 12 years ago. Uh, he was taken to a civil trial, which uh, bankrupted him. The civil trial found against him. And he's now got every politician, certainly every SNP politician, including quite a number of, con uh, including at least one uh, convicted sex offender politician, um, dedicated to ending his football career. And he's had this for 12 years, and he's, he spoke out, and, and, he's, he's, and he said, they'll keep at you until, you've, until, you're, until you're found swinging from a tree. And um, 
he's got a wife now and a family and he's trying to rebuild his life and they won't leave him alone. And eventually, after 12 years, he, he, he did an interview, started to speak out about this. And his current club was told, well, you've got you to get rid of him or, or the uh, council-owned um, ground you use won't be available to you. Right? And uh, this is this one of us, I think, the third or fourth time this has happened to him. And his current club said, do what you like. We, we've, we've a responsibility to this man uh, not to treat people like that. And we also have a responsibility to... Um, you know, to our, to our staff not to be so essentially to callous and disregard their their their, their welfare and well you know mental well being, um, and the fact that it's the same team who lecture us constantly on mental health, who are trying to drive people to this, is just one of the uh, hypocrisies we have to deal with. Um, you mentioned you mentioned your your your. Um, epilepsy and the fact that it's no longer with you and and so this was um, uh, this this must have been I can't imagine what this would have been like but this this was you know severe and lifelong and then all of a sudden not it, it must it must be yeah. fantastic <laughs> it turns out life if you're not an epileptic is quite easy <laughs> it's quite manageable who knew and um so the reason i signed up to fight or at least to um yeah fight for my country for 35 years uh in the intelligence corps i had the longest contract of any female in the british army at one time i wanted to be the first female general so that was my life all sorted and then I was also epileptic, came on about 1920. Uh, I tried to hide it, uh, which is incredibly dishonest, but I thought if I could prove that I was good enough and strong enough and fast enough, they would allow me to stay. Um, in hindsight, an epileptic with seizures and a semi-automatic weapon may not have been you know, my finest five minutes. But anyway, so I was medically discharged at a later time from the army, the only job I ever wanted. And my seizures in my life, or I call them fits, you're supposed to call them seizures these days. It doesn't matter to me what you call them. And um, if I could just mention that I'm speaking specifically about myself here. I'm not talking about your son or your daughter or the person you know with epilepsy. But for me, epilepsy made me a freak. And uh, you can understand why epilepsy used to get burnt as witches. I mean, why no one wants to talk about epilepsy or no one wants to admit that they've got an epileptic child, for example, because it's so ugly and so weird and so otherworldly. And uh, by the time I hit about 35, these seizures were out of control, always at night time, three or four seizures a night. Uh, they would dislocate one or both of my arms from their sockets. So they've been out of their sockets about 42, 38 times each have to go to A&E, have arms relocated, uh, I've taken off my tongue, I bit through my lips, I've knocked teeth out, you know, the stuff. And so uh, by 38, I was told by a surgeon, I just got in in time, I don't know how, uh, a brilliant surgeon, Mr. McAvoy, told me that a, a seizure would get me within the next two years. So that was at 38, so I had two years, but it might come sooner or at some point, you know, and so I used to be on the road. I, I hid my epilepsy from everybody um, because I see it as a weakness. And um, 
I didn't want special treatment. And so I used to wake up in on the road. I used to text my mum, still here. And I used to text lovely Mark, still here. Uh, and I think lovely Mark would be a bit like, shit, I can't kill her off. <laughs> but um, so the seizures were supposed to get me. And then I was so, so lucky just before, you know, before lockdowns, before COVID, before health system fell apart, I got, I waited three and a half years. So a seizure was supposed to get me in two years and I waited three and a half and I got my surgery. And this surgery, um, I have never had a seizure since. So a team of, I think, 12, uh, 14 hours. Uh, I don't have a top of my head anymore. Uh, there's people out there actually on the road who have felt my brain. Um, I'm like a little egg, basically. So they took off my skull uh, like this. And then they went in, they got out the kind of tumor lump, uh, threw it away. And they threw away the top of my head, which was inconvenient in the sense that now I just have a brain hanging out. But um, but I've never had another seizure and I've gone on to have my arms rebuilt uh, and started to rebuild my teeth. So um, it's been amazing. I, I couldn't be more grateful. I really am so grateful nearly every day. I try to be grateful. And it also means that I'm on extra time. And it means that there is literally nothing that I'm scared of and nothing that I fear. I've already met the end point, you know, and so uh, so that's why I know I'm unstoppable. Um, and that's why I can do what I do now is because there's nothing anyone can take from me and I'm on extra time. Um, so I, I, I just love this life. It's, it's awesome. You mentioned your arms. So this is another thing I want, I want, to, uh, I want to have a chat about um, because Katie's arms is a thing. I, and I, I, I was, I've watched Katie's arms for a while. And um, for those who, 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 who don't join you on its Friday <laughs> evening, isn't it? Yes. Tell, us all about, tell us all about the Katie's arms. So, so I believe um, the key thing, my, one of the jobs that I have assigned to myself is to get people through. Uh, because I've done dastardly things, because I've been so humiliated, I've humiliated myself, I've misbehaved, I've been caught doing things that people are like, oh, how can she live through this? Terrible things. But my view is, look at me, look at the stuff ups, look at the mess, look how I've been humiliated on a global stage often. You know, the downfall of Katie Hopkins, the end of Katie, the bankruptcy of Katie Hopkins. Katie Hopkins gets the X award, and by X, it's a rude word that you would never want to be called uh humiliation after humiliation always the worst pictures you know look how old she looks oh so i say to people you know we can get through this and i realized really early on when you saw covid what was coming and the way the media play was going with this what was going to happen they were going to crucify people and then i saw what happened inside the nhs before covid was officially launched and they terrified NHS workers. They were the key to spreading ultimate fear in the UK. It wasn't the mainstream media. It wasn't the newspapers. It was using NHS staff because everybody trusted their sister who was a doctor or their uncle who was a whatever. And those guys were briefed that this was going to be a mass death scenario and you would have to make life and death choices. Anyway, I saw that there was I was going to need to step up 
to be able to help pull people through. So, um, so we created the online pub. I miss pubs of the old days. I miss going into the pub and you know that above, 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 the people noise, the noise of people being together. I miss smoking pubs. I don't know why we can't have smoking pubs still where people, if they want to smoke, go and smoke. Why have we got to police how people choose to have a good time? Why have we got to try and reduce people's fun? We should be trying to maximize fun. Like the founding fathers in America, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. That was an actual thing. That is an actual foundation of America. America is the pursuit of happiness. So uh, Katie's Arms is an online pub, like like the King's Arms or the Queen's Arms. And then people you would always talk about my arms because I, you know, I, I, uh, I've been grateful enough to be given a second chance and to get arms back. And so I work out a bit. And so it became an online pub. It's half an hour. It's live. And it's essentially me gossiping away like some silly woman in the pub. And I just dish the dirt. I have, you know, gossip from BBC. I have gossip from media days. I have things people tell me that they want told, but they can't tell. And we just gossip away. And it's a bit mad. We drink away together. But I can't tell you the number of people after I do, when I'm on the road, people that come up, there's so much laughter. But then in the quiet time when I'm doing, I make sure I meet every member of the audience afterwards and thank them personally for coming. And there's so many tears. And people always say, or often say, sorry, um, you know, Katie's arms got me through lockdown. And I, 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 I can't imagine that because it's just silly me being silly. But people could look in the comments and the feed when I'm talking, you know, people write all sorts of, some people write funny things. Some people write just hello from Southern California. Hello from New Zealand. Hello from all over the world. And people realize they're not alone, you know, and this was the key that I repeat and I'll always repeat is you're not alone. You know, we're many and we're stronger together. And Katie's arms gave people at a time were told they were completely alone and they were the ones in the wrong if they didn't do this, or they were mad if they didn't do this, or they were conspiracy theorists if they didn't believe in this, or that their family were right to disinvite them for a funeral, or they shouldn't be allowed to travel, Piers Morgan, or Andrew Neil, they shouldn't be allowed to access healthcare. At that time, there was at least somewhere they could go where people were like, do whatever you want, be whatever you want, Just we're just going to get through this together. Uh, and that's basically what we do. So, so yeah, it's been glorious. It's it's blown up. The numbers on it are blown up to the point where it slightly scares me, um, but I love it, and I'm so grateful to everybody that joins us. Um, yeah, this is actually very similar to the column. The thing that we started to get once we we got into COVID craziness, uh, we we've started to get emails to to say you keep us sane. It was the same phrase. It kept coming up over and over and over again. And why, why are we getting this? But what you had was constant transmission of fear and guilt um, on all mainstream media sources a thousand times a day. I mean, it was just unrelenting. And, and our news show had uh, some, some folk talking honestly and they were unafraid. And, and I, think that, I think it wasn't any more complicated than that. It was real and it was unafraid, and that was enough. How many people um, go to Katie's arms now then? What, what are the numbers like? 
Uh, I, you know, um, so we're about a quarter of a million now strong, which is bonkers. <laughs> we, you know, we start, I, I like to, I, I don't like to talk about it because I like to be like, uh, oh, just me and, you know, me and a couple of others. So, so it's bigger than uh, I guess most podcasts are, but I still, I still don't want to talk about it because the numbers aren't the thing at all. Um, but I think to your point there, um, it's that not only was it being pushed at the media level, media, media, you know, those that death count on the BBC and with or from and the COVID and then all the scientists with their, you know, endless. It wasn't so much even that, I think, that provided the surround sound. The hurt came from within. So it came from family members rejecting their own. And it also came from within in terms of friendships. So it didn't matter so much that people you always thought were a bit of a, you know, I don't want to say asshole on UK column, but people you always thought were a bit, eh, you know, it didn't matter about them. It's the people you genuinely thought were your friends. The people who you genuinely thought were, you know, like you in that you were like-minded, whatever. It was when they turned on you, you realized how alone you were. And that absolutely, I I will maintain that that was a mass injury event. Lockdown was a mass injury event, like a car crash or a train wreck. And yet there was no broken bones and no blood to be seen, but it was a mass injury event. And right now, out there, people are still carrying those injuries with them, like a big water bottle just here. And as soon as you tap it or lance it a bit or you you make a room full of people laugh, it's like the water tap turns on and this flood of upset comes out. And, and that is what people are, that's physically how I see people. When I see people, I see them almost carrying this weight of upset. And, and that I think was done to peoples all over this planet, absolutely deliberately to set the ground for what's coming and is underway. You mentioned laughter, right? Now, th this, is, th this is vitally important. Right? Now, UK Column, we, we like to, we like mockery, right? We, we like laughter. Um, we, use, we use music and we use comedy as much as we can uh, because it's, it's, it's it's health. It's how it's how you process um, mm. the the craziness in the world. It's how you overcome it. It's it's a wonderful cathartic thing. Um, and we like people who commit to comedy. I mean, we like jokes, and we like jokes that go on and they get funnier as you go as they go on. Um, it's another reason, Katie. We like you because committing to a joke, okay, is a good thing. Not many people have been deported from a country and for the joke gone and got the word <laughs> deported tattooed on their arse, right, to simply to <laughs> laugh at the people who deported them, right? So, so firstly, thank you for doing that. And secondly, could you tell us a story, please? <laughs> it's funny. Because when I hear you saying it, I think, oh, that sounds ace. That sounds brilliant. And then I think, oh, wait a minute, that's me. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll, I'll try and do it in brief because it can bang on this story. But essentially, Australia, you know, lockdown, 
crucify Australia and it was really dark there. I mean, it was dark here, but that place you couldn't leave, you couldn't come back. People that had relatives dying, you weren't allowed to go back and see them. Mothers not able to return to small babies. I mean, it was mad, um, the level they went to, the the cruelty, that's the word. And at that same time, in a parallel path, I got the call to say they were doing this terrible program called Celebrity Big Brother, which I've done before. And they wanted me in it. And I was, I couldn't even, I mean, believe the hypocrisy. They wanted me to go there to do a TV show at a time when their mother could not see her own baby or a son could not be with his mother as she died. And so I thought in my head, yeah, go on then. You do, let's do this. Let's see how far we take this. And it went all the way. It went all the way to me being on a plane, to me being um, taken from the plane by the police, to being uh, put into quarantine prison. I mean, it was a very nice flat on the 23rd floor. To grown men briefing me on the rules, I must not touch the door. I'm not allowed a key. If I hear a fire alarm, stay in place. (laughs) Sure. Uh, I'm not allowed to go out. I have to wait for my food to be delivered. I have to count 30 seconds before I'm allowed to go to the, the door and get my food delivered. I mean, Plus, they brought me into the country. I'd never had a vaccine in my life. So I was told to lay low. I was told to tell no one I was there. I was told to keep my mouth shut. I was told lots more rules. And I think we're getting the impression of me. I'm not great with rules. I don't like to be told what to do. And I think I've earned the right to just walk my own path. And so one morning when I heard another terrible story and I thought, okay, that's it. And so I went live and bear in mind, everybody at this point's online because no one's allowed out. They weren't even allowed out. They weren't allowed to browse in the supermarket. There was no browsing rules. You had to keep your supermarket trolley going at a constant velocity. I mean, so I got online and I went for it and I exposed that I was there, that I was put in a quarantine place, that I've taken the place of someone else who could have been here to see their relatives, that I've been brought over here for entertainment, that people need to stop obeying, people need to stop being compliant. And then I got into my flow, you know, and then it was, you need to rise up against the tyranny of the people. You were a prison island, but why are you acting like one now? And I I went full Churchill. And then on top of the cooker, I saw this oil, this this vegetable oil, and I was like, you know what I'm going to do? The next time security knock on my door, and it's the military, it's the army, bringing my food, I am going to get naked. I'm going to cover myself in vegetable oil, and I'm going to run down the 23rd floor, and I'm going to grab the member of the military, and then I'm going to drag him squealing like a pig into my room, and then I'm going to do, te- and I was acting this out, terrible things to him. And then the BBC, uh, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, CNN ran that as actually having happened. Hopkins violates military on 23rd floor. My parents are Methodists. Um, It didn't go well. Uh, I never left my hotel room. I never got naked, although I'm willing to at any time. And uh, it went, it's so same again, it went dark very, very quick. My water was turned off. The electricity was turned off. The food couldn't be delivered because there was a poisoning attempt. Uh, Immigration were involved. They rang me on the hour, every hour for 48 hours. 
and then eventually two van loads of um, uh, <laughs> migration police officers, I don't know, turned up in full hazmat gear with breathing apparatus <sighs> to take me to the airport where they had the press waiting, obviously. And then they put me on a plane and they deported my ass back to the UK. And they banned me for three years and they fined me $1,000 for violating a member of the military on the 23rd floor. This may need to be edited out, depending on how... Um, I'm going to try and do the unthinkable there. That's the um, deported stamp on my arse. So I got my arse out on UK column, just, uh, you know, for the record. <laughs> oh, well, for the record, the intro introduction compared you to one of the 12 apostles and, and you, showed, you showed your arse on UK column. Um, uh, that's, that's, uh, that covers it's a, whole new a fair Testament, range darling. in one interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were a whole, this is a whole new religion we've got going on here <laughs> so yeah so I had that done and then I sent the I got so I, I was it popped up in Arizona which is somewhere else I wasn't allowed to be and the tattoo bar was called leap of faith and I love that because I tell my daughters like leap <laughs> it's a true story leap and your wings will unfurl right so I go in there with my passport and I say to the guy I want this on my ass and then, and he was a Trump supporter. So it was, you know, we had a great time. But then I sent a picture of my ass to the deputy prime minister of Australia who deported me in the first place. Um, so yeah, it's a good, it's a good story, but it's a true one. So this takes us, this takes us to comedy <laughs> tours, right? So you are currently, right. when you're not being cancelled, um, touring the UK and uh, your show is called Live, Laugh, Love. Is this, is this right? And uh, well. <laughs> how, how, is, how is the tour going? <laughs> so the last tour, um, which is finished now, was called Live, Laugh, Love. And it was a terrific risk. I don't know if anyone's ever considered doing stand-up, but if you consider it even for 10 seconds, you say, no way. <laughs> no way. Exactly. No way. Even if you're a speaker, even if you're used to cameras, even if you're a writer, you'll say no way. But um, I did one show. I After five years of not being allowed to speak anywhere in the UK, uh, a gentleman called Alex Belfield, I had been watching some of my stuff, thought I could do equivalent of stand-up, thought I was funny, and asked me to do his Blackpool show with him. And so we added my name and then all of a sudden we sold out Blackpool three times over and it was the highest grossing show uh, in their modern history. It is still. Uh, so 4,000 people in one weekend. And that was the start of it. And so I started the Live, Laugh, Love tour and that went so brilliantly. I, I will say very clearly, it is not without its heartbreak still. Um, after Blackpool, every theatre wanted in on it. They all wanted a piece of that money because they saw that no one was selling tickets like that. And then one by one by one by one, the left, the matrix, the mob got to these venues and I lost 30 venues. So 30 theatres pulled on the basis of one person or two people showing them some old tweets or saying that I was a hater or 
that I was an Islamophobe, whatever, it doesn't matter the labels. So, and I'm still absolutely battling that now. We just lost two theatres last week, Port Talbot and another one. Yeah, the name escapes me. So to, in terms of your football story the other day, and in terms of me talking about the cancelling and being so positive and optimistic, it's still every single day, uh, given the opportunity, someone will assert their place on the moral high ground by having me removed. But what's been amazing is that when places hold, we will sell out. So the new tour, and it's kind of you to ask, thank you, uh, is coming out in the next week or so. Lovely Mark has got the tour dates lined up. Uh, It's going to be called Infectious. So it's the Infectious Tour, as in laughter, not some fake disease. Uh, So the Infectious Tour, it starts at the end of August. It will run through November. Uh, We're already sold out uh, in, I think, three or four venues. This is the problem I have. I can't get enough venues. I can't get enough tickets because all people want to do is come and laugh and feel better. And that's what we do. And my favorite thing of all, if I may, just very quickly about this tour at Live, Laugh, Love, is that, so at Blackpool in particular, uh, we got a call from the managers because they've been amazing, and, but you know, we've got to, got to keep an eye. And they rang because they were concerned because there were so many individual tickets being sold. And they were, we were all concerned that maybe it was a group that were buying separately, might meet up there, try to cause trouble, you know, harm someone, you know, these idiots, they're pathetic. But it turned out it was just because our people are alone. And because of what we're offering, which is a place you can just come and you'll immediately be one of the family. It doesn't matter whether you're black, white, straight, gay, whatever, you, it doesn't even matter. You can come on your own and you belong. And that's the glorious thing. Everywhere I go, a lot of the tickets that are sold far more than any normal event are individuals who come without their wives or without their husbands or without their family because they've been isolated. And it's so uplifting and I I love it so much. And it stresses me out because it's terrifying, but it's just great to laugh together. And, you know, I was mentioning this the other day, but I'm not supposed to be funny. I was supposed to be, I'm an intelligence corps officer in the army. That's my heart. But in the time of um, the courts and the king's the only person who could speak truth to power was the jester. And I guess that's why there's this new iteration of myself, is that the way that I can not be censored to the same extent is to be funny, even though at my core, my message is still exactly the same as it always was. It is striking that uh, in, in Scripture, when it talks about about the end times, about the worst times that there will ever be. And it talks about how the Christians react during this. They'll laugh. They'll look at all the persecution. They'll look at all the... They'll look at everything that's coming their way and they'll they'll laugh. Laughter is a wonderful thing. You mentioned Alex Belfield. Um, I was appalled at every aspect of the Alex Belfield case. Now, you obviously know him. Um, can you can you say a little bit, just, just briefly, what happened to him? And uh, could you maybe let us know how he's doing? Sure. 
So uh, my first contact with Alex was when he kindly asked me to share his stage in Blackpool, you know, and bear in mind all these other people with stages and platforms had never asked me. And, and I don't mean that any of them had to, it was just what a generous thing to share that space and take a risk on me. So we did that together and we did another series of events six months later. Um, but all the while there was this kind of thing going on in his background where he'd been uh, doing videos on his uh, YouTube channel about Jeremy Vine, about the BBC. Um, I think at some point, and I don't know the detail and I don't frankly need to, there was times when he'd emailed extensively to Jeremy Vine and others. It was considered harassment or whatever. And so cases were brought against Alex to do with this kind of harassment or the idea of stalking. Um, all I knew was the Alex from the stage and Alex that had these legal problems going on, particularly the BBC coming for him, uh, strip searching him, uh, going into his home, taking away all his tech and hardware, not finding anything, but still coming for him and me understanding a bit what that's like. And then um, he went to court eventually for this case of stalking that was brought by members of the BBC and Jeremy Vine in particular. And Jeremy Vine was in court and he cried and said he was uh, so frightened for his life that he'd had to show Alex's pictures to his daughters because he was frightened that what Alex would do. Now, I don't know if any of you out there who are listening have met Alex, but I can say uh, of all the people that I may have been frightened of in my life, Alex Belfield is probably the least frightening one. Like the idea of Alex Belfield as frightening when he's just this outrageously ginger guy who's slightly camp and wears really tragic jackets. That's about the limit of Alex Belfield. But anyway, and, and I don't go into the detail of, of what went on on emails. I can say for a fact, Alex Belfield never, ever showed up at anyone's door. He never, ever threatened anyone physically in the street. And he never, ever threatened anyone that he would come and find them in the streets. And for his crime of, I think, applying pressure to the BBC where they didn't want it, he was sentenced. So I was on stage with him on the weekend and I was saying, no, 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 you won't get, it's going to be fine. And I thought maybe, maybe they'll give him a suspended sentence or maybe they'll take him down, keep him for two days, release him just so they can get the press pictures, which is kind of standard. But they sent him down for five and a half years for online stalking. And again, just like with me, this was a new law created just for Alex that created the precedent that you could have jail time for online stalking. And as with me, this all seemed to be written up, no matter what was said, no matter what happened in the court, this all seemed to be decided in advance. Um, so he will serve two and a half years inside. I spoke to him, I speak to him about twice a week. I spoke to him probably about three days ago. And you know, I, I try and think beforehand about the things I might talk about. How can I talk about something that helps him, but isn't too interesting? You know, how do I not say I've been doing anything too exciting, but also have fresh things for him to think about so that I, I'm trying to be helpful and it's hard to know how to be helpful. And so I just keep telling him about holding on, you know, different stories about, oh, just hold on because whatever happens, time is ticking. And he said um, that inside there's a saying, which is they can turn the locks, but they, they can't turn the clocks. 
And I just think that's the most perfect thing. Because even in your worst days or hours or minutes inside, and what do I know about that other than nearly having gone, um, the clock is still ticking. And so that's key, that's my message that I just repeat over and over. You know, you just got to get to tomorrow. You just got to get to this afternoon. You just got to get to this evening. And so he reads people's emails. He reads people's letters. He sends them on to his mum so that she can also see he's got support because uh, but he is serving five and a half years for the crime of making some videos and posting them on YouTube. It is it is a, a stunning case. Uh, I was astonished. I mean, th- there's a clue when sometimes when you, you, you see the sentence and it, it just says, well, that's simply there to silence and intimidate and there's, there's no hint of justice about that. It was one of those. Uh, I've seen it before in the Hampstead case, and um, I, actually, I, I'm I'm sitting here because uh, of visiting uh, a, a man in jail who was locked up for um, <laughs> for the crime of talking about um, something called the Violate Club, which is a fetish club organised by an Airdrie lawyer, which is frequented by some of the great and good in Scotland. And um, they use, amongst other things, uh, child-sized dolls in sexual activity. And um, he he was talking about this, and uh, he'd he'd previously campaigned for a girl up in Aberdeen called Holly Gregg. Man's name was Robert Green. And uh, he'd got, he stood for Parliament um, to, uh, as part of that campaign and was banned from the city in which he was standing for Parliament and uh, arrest, uh, he was arrested and then banned from the city. He was subsequently convicted of breach of the peace. He was given a year, he got let out. He was still campaigning and writing and he wrote about the Violate Club and uh, Police Scotland came down all the way to Cheshire to lift him. And the only thing they wanted on the way back up was to talk about what he knew about the Violet Club. And was he going to release the membership list? So I started visiting Robert Green inside. And it was very strange because everyone in the prison knew that he was in for campaigning against child sexual abuse. So he was a hero. We would go in and there would be such laughter in these visiting uh, in these visits, you know, I'm sure all the wardens go, what's, what's, this is just not normal, you know, uh, why, why is he so cheerful? And I was, one day I'd been at uh, either a wedding or a funeral, I can't remember, and I was all dressed up in my kilted finery. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm seeing Robert in the, in the jail tonight. I, I suppose I should change, I thought, no, stuff it. You know, he's a special, he's a special prisoner, he's a special person. I'm going like this. So I turned up in a kilt and as, as you go in uh, to visit, you, 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 get, you get patted down, you get frisked. And there's two lines, one for men, one for women. So I looked at these wardens and said, which line do you want me in? And, and they kind of smiled and, and pointed at the bloke's line. They'd obviously never patted down anyone in a kilt before. So there was a, there was a bit of awkwardness and then I went. And um, you know, Robert thought this was an absolute hoot, me turning up with this. Uh, but he got strip searched that night because because he just did. <laughs> um, but it was it's for me this started visiting someone in jail and someone in jail for telling the truth. And the um, 
the sheriff that he named uh, in the Holy Greg case is still on the bench in Aberdeen, still serving. And um, uh, police Scotland are a really special breed. You know, there's some police forces um, as we head towards the darkness or as we hurtle towards the darkness. There's some police forces, you know, I could write down now the police forces that we'll hear from about first, if, if truth ever came out or in my lifetime. So Police Scotland, 100% there. West Midlands Police, you know, if truth ever came out, them. Because they're the ones, Police Scotland are the ones that came leaping to get me whenever I said something that was truth, but you're not allowed to say. Because in an age where truth becomes hate speech, telling facts is an arrestable offence, of which I've fallen foul on more than one occasion, thanks to Police Scotland. Police Scotland threatened to repatriate me from Australia at Christmas because of a tweet. They love a headline, those guys. And same with West Midlands Police, the heart of darkness, West Midlands Police, in my personal opinion. And I've reason to believe that. So, well, all good love to him. And I'm glad he's managing to stay sane. Um, I think when you're imprisoned from the truth, actually, it was an interesting story. I was looking for it earlier, but the gentleman that was released yesterday uh, on the steps of the courts of appeal, he's done 17 years for a rape he didn't commit. And he had to serve, it was a life sentence he was given. This was Manchester police that put him inside. He was given a life sentence of which he would serve seven years. And he served those seven and he was given the opportunity to be freed if he would acknowledge his guilt. And he refused. And because he refused, he was given 10 more years inside and they've just got him out on the Court of Appeal. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, very, I'm very drawn to that story because he held his truth, even though every minute of those 10 years, he paid the price. And the juxtaposition for me is a lot of the January 6th individuals that I know well, that were imprisoned and are in prison they gave, uh, they pled guilty as part of their plea deal to get a lesser sentence. And many of them have a great deal of regret about that. When asked what they regret, they regret the plea deal, they regret pleading guilty. And some now are actually going back to court to ask for their guilty to be overturned because they made it under duress. They were trying to save maybe their wife or their kids or whatever that they were told would be, you know, got at. And I, I just think that's an interesting thing for your listeners is at what price do you acknowledge you did something when you didn't, you know, and at what price to maintain your innocence? And when people say, well, of course I would, I would just keep saying I was innocent, but would you, if you were pushed, would you, what if they were going to take away your holidays? I mean, that was enough for people to get the vaccine, wasn't it? What if they were going to take away, you know, your right to travel? Well, that was enough for some people. What if, you know, when the pressure really comes is when you find out what you would be prepared to go through, I think. Yeah, one of the lessons I've had to learn in this is that innocent people plead guilty all the time. And when you see the pressure that they're under, I absolutely understand why. Uh, exactly. Partly, it's, partly it's the legal profession. Partly the legal profession's responsible for this because the legal profession will say here's your here's your state appointed defender and the state appointed defender will say look you, you, there's no chance here you're definitely going to be found guilty the only thing you can do to help yourself 
right? Because the, the, the guilty verdict sentence doesn't matter whether you plead innocent or guilty. If you plead guilty, you're going to get you're going to get lesser uh, a, a lesser sentence. Often that's a lie too. Uh, and it's it's so extended over such a period of time, the pressure builds and it's unrelenting, and and people crack and they do it all the time. Innocent people plead guilty all the time. Great credit to the man who stood, who who took an extra ten years to stand for the truth and stand for the fact that he was he was innocent. And this this brings us full circle to where we started. How do you know if you can trust someone if they're telling the truth? Well, if the truth is costing them and they keep saying it, they're probably telling the truth. Yeah, I, I think that's fair, and I think that's true. I think that extrapolates backwards, even to the point of litigation. So the reason I lost my house was because I had to go down a form of bankruptcy proceedings known as an IVA, an Individual Voluntary Arrangement. I've never owed anyone a penny in my life. I've never even owned a credit card because I don't actually like debt. It's something that I wasn't brought up with. Um, and so when I I tweeted about someone in error, I made a mistake. I uh, accused someone of something they didn't do. Uh, I retracted, I apologized, I deleted the rest of it. Uh, but they wanted £5,000 for a migrant charity, which because of my beliefs and because of what I know, I wasn't prepared to give. That to me is extortion. So I wasn't prepared to do that. When this case got brought to the high court, um, and you can imagine the kinds of organisations who were helping to fund that in order to bring me down, um, I had to, everyone was, well, you must settle. £30,000 it was by then. Just settle, just settle, just give her the money, £30,000. doesn't matter, just give it to her. And it was like, well, I could give her £30,000, but we're now going to have case law where if you perceive you've been seriously harmed, you don't have to prove harm, you can sue someone. And that is now law. And I, I was willing to take it all the way to the high court, even though I don't believe in the law anymore, even though I don't believe in judges, even though I don't believe it's just one man's interpretation, usually, you know, associated with the matrix or the government or whatever you call them. But it, it mattered to me that you you should not have to settle the perceived serious harm. And that is libel law in the country now. And it cost me my house, you know, um, because right once the case was found in the other lady's favour, which everybody thought it would be, with new law, it meant that the very next day, everybody I had ever exposed or written about or investigated or proved in the Daily Mail or LBC they'd done wrong, they came for me. So there was a row of court cases lined up like buses, each wanting £30,000. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the reality is how far will you go? And And honestly, I don't blame people you never know until you're tested. And, and in some ways, actually, I feel like the vaccine was that test. Oh, but I really needed to go to that wedding. Oh, but I really needed to go on holiday. <laughs> you know, and no criticism particularly, just self-preservation is a, it's a very powerful tool that is used against us and will be again. Katie, um, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you today and want to thank you very much for, for joining us and uh, oh, for being uh, so candid and so funny. And uh, <laughs> until next time, and I do hope there'll be a next time because uh, we've got a lot more to talk about. Uh, till next time, goodbye. <laughs>